Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say our guest is Peter Morville. He's joining us from Ann Arbor in Michigan in the States, although he is a fellow Brit. He's an author, a pioneer in the field of information architecture, architecture and a marathon runner. Peter, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. And it's pretty early for you, right? It's dark, you were telling me before we came on up. It, it is early. It's still dark out, but it's not as early as two days ago when I got up at 4.30 in the morning to run my first ultra marathon. Oh, wow. How, how, uh, yeah, how, long, how long is that? So I, I, turned, um, I turned 50 in, sept- in the, uh, early September, and so I decided to run a 50K. Yeah, so one, one kilometer for each year I've been alive. <laughs> wow. And that isn't that something you could well we'll get into your book but your latest book planning for everything you talk about every year you have like a, a big mission is that right I I try I don't I don't believe in uh new year's resolutions uh you know there a new year's resolution is one of those things that you always say I'm going to be better at this and then you then you fail and forget and uh so I I try to come up with a plan every year and uh this year I was sort of late I waited till the uh, early summer and then uh, just kind of in a spur of the moment, just decided, let me try my first ultra. Wow. And was that running all the way or was there, was there a bit of walking? Or? It, it was a bit of walking. This, this race is called Dances with Dirt. And it's physically impossible to run the whole thing because you go up incredibly steep hills. You go through muddy bogs. You go up a river. Uh, and you go through the forest where the hardest part is finding the next flag <laughs> to keep on the trail. So it was part part marathon and part puzzle. <laughs> right. Well, if I had a friend at university who did the orienteering challenges where they'd, yeah, they'd do something like that. You'd, you'd run a bunch and then you'd get into the middle of a wood. You have to solve, solve a puzzle. Yeah, so it was hard, but it was more fun than I expected. Wow. Well, congratulations. Uh, are, you, are you planning on doing any more ultras? No. <laughs> yeah. I think one's probably enough for me. <clears throat> right, right. There's still some other crazy things out there in the world to do. Uh, do you know what's next on the list then? What's the next I, have no, I have no idea. No, I, I think I should uh, maybe take it easy for a few weeks. <laughs> right. Fair, fair enough. Yes. And so I, I, I'm sure a big section of our listenership will will know what we mean by information architecture. That's your background and perhaps why you're most famous or what you're most famous for. Um, so, but for those who who aren't familiar with that, I wonder if we start there and then and then skip to your to your latest book. You know, what 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 do we mean by information architecture and uh, and, and I suppose its impact on the world today? I think that might be useful for, for some people to understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> I haven't. I haven't actually been asked to define information architecture for a little bit. Um, there were there were times where I was doing that every day. Um, you know, I go, I go back to to why I started doing this in the first place. I went through library school in the early 1990s, and I was convinced that a lot of the traditional principles of librarianship that had been operating in the physical world for centuries had some value in this new emerging digital world, the early online computer networks and the internet. Uh, And so when I started working on the internet and online environments, my passion kind of coming from a library background was to help people find what they need. 
So findability was really my passion. Information architecture is what we ended up kind of describing the, the practice, the field of work, uh, which is really around, you know, structuring and organizing information, designing information environments, um, you know, for multiple reasons, still at the, at the core of it is findability. Um, but, you know, if you think about the various goals of user experience, you, you're also thinking about, uh, you know, credibility and authority and desirability and uh, accessibility. And so there's, there's a lot of things you need to be thinking about as you're designing an information architecture. Uh, in the most practical sense, when you think about information architecture, uh, people think about, um, you know, organization, uh, structure, navigation, search, labeling, right? All of those pieces of software or, uh, or a website that, you know, basically form the structure or, you know, to, to borrow from the metaphor, right? It's the, it's the foundation or the blueprint um, for, the, for the house. Right. Right. And, and to give a sense of how, you know, how it's being used and how it shapes our experiences today, maybe useful for people to understand, I, th I think. What, what can you share there? Yeah, so I'm, uh, you know, we, we wrote the, the Polar Bear book on information architecture. Uh, it was published in 1998. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were, we were fortunate um, with timing, right? That was a time when, when everybody was interested in the internet. <laughs> and so our, our book sold phenomenally well. Um, and that was kind of a, you know, the, that, that next few years was sort of the peak time of interest in information architecture and people, you know, graphic designers were just changing their business cards overnight to read information architect, right? That, that was the sexy job title for a couple of years. And that was kind of fun, but the, you know, the, the, the attention died down and shifted to other places. Um, but the, you know, the, the basic work hasn't changed, um, you know, since the 1990s, you know, the, the process that, that I go through, you know, I start with, um, you know, background research to, to, to kind of get a sense of, you know, with my clients, um, what do you already know? What kinds of research have you already done? Take a look at your analytics, that sort of thing. Then I'm going to do user research to try to understand how do users use your existing site or software um, and what are their mental models and their information seeking behaviors. I'm going to talk with stakeholders to have a, a sense of, under, of, of current goals and plans, metrics, and to make them feel part of the process. And then we're going to start kind of coming up with information architecture strategy. Uh, uh, and, you know, that first takes form in narrative, you know, in kind of a narrative form where you're kind of, you know, trying to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of what are the goals and what's the direction. Um, but what information architecture is doesn't really click until you get to the point where you're doing sketches or wireframes or prototypes and people start to see the bare bones of structure for the site, right? So it's, oh, here are the links. Here's what, you know, the labels for those links. Here's what you can do on a page. Here's where you can go. Um, and that's where people kind of get what information architecture is, right? Before you start worrying about the graphic design or visual design, the, um, the colors and fonts and images, you're, you're trying to get that structure right so that people can understand where they are and where they can go. And 
you know, that can then follow through to great levels of detail in terms of um, mapping out, you know, various pages and interfaces throughout the site um, and getting into, you know, we can kind of get back to some of the library science stuff where you might have controlled vocabularies and taxonomies that you have to really get into, into depth with, <coughs> with vocabularies and, 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 and kind of making sure each word is right. Right. And, and to what extent then has it become part of user experience? Cause that seems to be like the, the major le- interest now, right? How, how do those two intertwine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were, uh, a lot of the folks who helped to pioneer the, the, the user experience field um, were kind of active in the information architecture community before UX was a thing. Um, and uh, I mean, Jesse James Garrett <coughs> really um, deserves credit for taking uh, a number of acronyms like IA and IXD, right, which was interaction design, and kind of showing how the pieces of building a user experience can fit together from, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the goals and strategy um, all the way up to the interaction and interface design and showing that information architecture was a piece of that. Uh, so, you know, it's, I, I've always, you know, to be a little provocative, I've always argued that information architecture is a subset of user experience and vice versa. <laughs> um, because there are things that we do in information architecture that, uh, aren't really driven by what are we trying to achieve for the user. There are things we're trying to do that are, that are kind of more driven by the business. Um, and there, 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 there are times as an information architect where we're thinking more about how do we work with the technology side. Um, you can argue everything's part of UX if you want to, uh, but if you have a kind of a more, you know, kind of realistic definition of UX, I don't think it fully contains IA. Right. And in terms of where you see the field now and, and, the, and the kind of state, I suppose, of digital experiences, where have we got to go with information architecture? You know, what, what, what's next or, or what's current in terms of the big areas of interest? Um, so I mentioned that, you know, IA fell out of favor in the early 2000s. Um, and I don't think that that, is sort of an, an accident of history. I think I think of information architecture in the same sense as um, systems thinking, which was really big in the 1970s. Um, some of the top books on the subject of systems thinking sold millions of copies, and then everyone forgot about it. <laughs> uh, most people, you stop someone on the street and ask them, "Do you know what systems thinking is?" They've never heard of it, um, and I think that's because. What systems thinking and information architecture share in common is an, an interest in looking beneath the surface uh, at deeper layers of complexity and acknowledging sort of second and third order effects of what you do. And I think that most people have an immune response to this. It's uncomfortable. They like to focus more on the surface and the idea of quick wins. Um, not necessarily looking at the longer term effects and, and, and trying to figure out strategy. Uh, and so I think that these subjects kind of get pushed down a little bit. So, so what I see in the, in the business world today is, a, is, a, is an amnesia. A lot of what we, you know, uh, a lot of the, the, 
the knowledge that we developed, the, the skills and practices around information architecture that we developed in the 90s and early 2000s have been forgotten by many UX teams, right? So very often when I'm working today, I'm brought into an organization that has a significant user experience operation going, right? They might have 10 or 20 or, you know, 50 people, none of whom have any deep information architecture expertise. So before we worry too much about how to advance, you know, the, the kind of cutting edge of information architecture, we really need to figure out some ways to make sure that people are who are practicing UX have a better kind of IA tool set um, because, because people are just making this mistakes that we, you know, we kind of figured our way around in the 1990s. Um, yeah. So, so part of it's just like getting the basics, right. You know, that I'm seeing um, that's not happening in most business environments today. Right. And if we take that thesis, then what, what's the impact? What's uh, of people not getting the kind of one oh one right for businesses and, and, and users? Yeah. Um, terribly frustrating user experiences. You can't find stuff that you should be able to find. Um, and it gets worse because <clears throat> the other thing that's going on, you know, if, to kind of go back to why I got into this, this work in the first place, it was to help people find what they need. Um, you know, my passion has always been for helping the end user achieve their goal, right? For making it better for that person. But now that, that UX has become a more integral part of business, right, that, that we have a seat at the table, which is what people kept saying we needed, um, you know, that comes with a cost. And the cost is that there's now powerful business forces saying, well, you know, we're not, we don't care that much about the end user. In fact, we want to take advantage of that end user, right? We want more money from that end user. We want them to look at our advertising. and so. It's, you know, beyond the intellectual challenges of figuring out how to provide a good user experience, there's the, the kind of the business and cultural forces that are saying, well, you know, let's sacrifice the quality of the, of the user or customer experience in order to make a few more dollars. And so you see, you know, I mean, Amazon is an example of a site that at one point had a very solid information architecture. Um, but we've seen them in the last few years increasingly putting advertising into their own search result, right? Which is the equivalent of I go to a bookstore and there's, you know, I can't actually get to the book I want because I've got advertisements shoved, shoved in my face. And very frustrating is, um, you know, so that's another challenge, right? There's the amnesia. We've sort of forgotten much of what we learned. And then there's the, the, the sort of the other pressures from the, the kind of the, the capitalist uh, front. Right. Okay. So, and, and the ultimately it, it's impacting end users with, with findability. And actually I resonate with that. I mean, I, it, it's interesting to me that you kind of, I, I'm still having experiences where I can't find stuff on some of my favorite sites. I'll put in a search and I yeah. expect to be able to find it. And I'll end up going to Google to see if I can find it on their site yep. through Google. Right. I mean, I do yep. that quite often. And it is interesting to me how, how long has search on websites been around and people are still not getting it right? <laughs> yeah. And um, so, so my other, some other thought there is then what, what's your prescription? You know, if, if you're a, if you're a frustrated 
user experience <laughs> architecture or just a frustrated sort of business stakeholder or owner and 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 kind of resonate with what you're saying here and want to know how to fix it yeah so i have a couple different responses to that um so first there's still a lot of good we can do within the context of user experience and, and sort of you know digital digital design um you know we can make sure that we that we do our homework that we that we do you know we kind of do the the reading and and the learning you know so that we really know what we're doing and then we can do our best to share that and you know when i'm working with organizations today i try to build uh more education and more kind of co-creation into the process so i work more closely with my clients we do more workshops um you know, I invite them, in, you know, to participate in the user research. Uh, I help them to understand why we're designing an information architecture the way we are, because I've become more aware over time that, uh, you know, the, the superhero designer who kind of comes in and, you know, shows the interface or the wireframes and, and saves the day, right? those are, those are, those are quick wins, right? And you feel good for, for a little bit, but if nobody understands the information architecture, then as it gets into the hands of designers and developers, it's going to be changed and changed and changed until some of the, you know, the initial um, strengths are gone. So I've, I've kind of learned you, like, if you really want to make a lasting impact in an organization, change the people, right? Help them to understand because, because, you know, they will live a lot longer than, than your specific ideas for a website or software product. Um, so there's a lot of good we can do in the environments in which we practice, um, you know, through, through education, um, by setting a good example, by, you know, we have to pick our battles, but, 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 some, but we should pick some <laughs> and we should fight for the user uh, uh, when, when we can. Uh, but I also think that, uh, that, that especially for, for practitioners in kind of my peer group, right. For folks who are, you know, hitting their fifties, um, and, and maybe have some freedom to try something different. You know, I think that, that it's worth asking the question, can I do more good outside this context? Right. Um, I've heard people over the years just sort of ask, how can we use UX or IA to make the world a better place? And I think that's a good question, but I don't think it should be asked at the expense of saying, how can I make the world a better place independent of what I've been doing for the last 20 years, right? Like you don't, you don't have to force that skill set into your new goals or future. So for me, I have this idea of, of, uh, of creating a, an animal sanctuary and, and, and using it as an opportunity to, to kind of teach people, help people to be kinder to animals. And that's sort of a passion for me. I kind of see myself, you know, next 25 years, that's kind of what I would like to be doing. And you know, I was thinking about it this morning in, in anticipation of this interview. And I thought, you know, in a sense, when I started out uh, 25 years ago, uh, my, my mission was I want to help people find what they need. Okay. 
and and we've seen in the last few years some of the problems with that 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 you know with with, with kind of the internet and findability um, you know people find a lot of garbage <laughs> right people aren't people aren't always good at finding what they need they 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 um, they find what's easy uh, and can be very misleading so I, I've there's an irony that as an information professional, someone who's dedicated my career um, to, to, to kind of, you know, issues all in, in and around the information world that, that I've, I've come up against the limits of information, right? Just providing access to information um, has some real limits. And so I, when I think about the next 25 years, I'm more interested in, instead of find, helping people find what they need, I'm interested in helping people change what they want, right? And that's kind of gets into a, into cultural and moral issues. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't, it's not that I have the answers for that. I'm going to allow myself 25 years to figure it out. Um, but that, you know, I, 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 I'm excited by this idea of really shifting what I'm doing. I think there may be some interesting connections between, you know, the world of internet and, software and UX and IA and, and what I want to do next. Um, but I'm, I'm giving myself the freedom to kind of, to shift. Uh, uh, so I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I can, I can see the, the parallels there in terms of your professional work. Cause you're saying on the one hand, you, you, you shift your sort of professional stance to be more about uh, education and having people get interested in perhaps different things and coming up with a kind of killer design, um, which in a sense is changing what people want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you're also seeking to do that with with the animal sanctuary or, or sentient sanctuary. Is that still how you're referring to yeah, it? Yeah, that's my, my working name for it. And, and maybe the ultimate name for it is sentient sanctuary um, with the idea of of helping to increase happiness and reduce suffering for all sentient beings. Wow. The modest goal. <laughs> well, and again, I can see the parallel with information architecture, right? I'm happy if I find the right thing and I reduce my suffering if I'm not beating my head. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're all trying to find it. Um, okay. And so, and this is born out of, and we will get more into the book, planning for everything, but you, you mentioned it in planning for everything. You've got a, a weekly commitment to, to walk dogs. Is Oh yeah. So, um, in uh, in the wake of our last presidential election, uh, I was feeling pretty demoralized uh, and and uh, frustrated and kind of helpless, and I I really felt like I needed to do something good that had nothing to do with the internet. Um, I was a little tired of of business and and digital, and so I decided to start walking dogs at our local humane society. Uh, and, you know, that was a few years ago and I've been doing, you know, once a week, I, I walk dogs for an hour or two. Uh, at first it was a little scary, you know, going into a kennel with a, a, a large pit bull that I've never met before. Um, they've got very big jaws, uh, but most of them are super friendly and halfway through the walk, they're rolling on their backs and asking for a belly rub. Um. So that's been good to kind of, you know, to maintain my sanity through the craziness of the last few years. Um, and for me, it was a bit of a test, uh, you know, having spent most of my uh, last 25 years doing things that in, in one sense or another were more selfish, right? So, you know, um, uh, as a consultant, right, 
I'm, I'm doing work that I think is important, but I'm getting paid well for it. Uh, and I'm looking after my family. Um, but this was an experiment to sort of see, you know, can I feel happy and fulfilled doing things for others? Right. And in this case, it was for these, these dogs that really need an extra walk or, or two. Um, and it's been great. It's been, uh, often, uh, taking a dog for a walk, uh, um, at the humane society has been the, the, the best part of my week. You know, you, you're stressed and there's too much going on and you get out there and it's, uh, kind of get out in this, this path in the woods with the dog and you just start to feel really good. And maybe the sun pops out and all of a sudden it's kind of magical and you think, you know, I wouldn't rather be doing anything else. Wow. And it was during one of these walks that the idea for sentient sanctuary came to you or? Um, not, not so much. Um, the, the, the idea for sentient sanctuary, uh, it, it definitely popped up while I was writing my book on planning and it came, uh, as the result of changing how I think about time. So for, Ever since I turned 40, I had had this idea, okay, I want to work really hard, try to save as much money as I can, and, and, and create the opportunity when I turn 50 to do something different, right? Just create a little bit of freedom. Uh, but I didn't know what that different thing was. And then as, 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 as kind of each year ticked by, I felt frustrated that I couldn't come up with anything else I wanted to do, um, which, you know, to, in one sense... Um, I really do enjoy being an information architect um, and I, I, I plan to continue doing that for at least several years. Um, you know, so it, my challenge was find something I want to do more than what I'm doing. Um, the best thing I had ever come up with was, well, maybe I'll teach. Right. And I've done, I did a little bit of that um, a, a while back at, at the uh, school of information uh, here at the university of Michigan. And it's fine. Like I have no problem with teaching. It can be a good thing to do you know, as you slide into semi-retirement, um, uh, or for your profession, if that's what, you know, what you choose. But, um, but I just felt that I was suffering from a failure of the imagination, right? It's like, okay, if you can do something different, what? <laughs> Couldn't come up with it. Um, and then what helped me was I, for, for some reason, I, I kind of came up with this idea of instead of thinking, what would I do for the next few years, I, I, I organized my life into 25 year chunks. And so I said, okay, so life one was, you know, being a kid growing up, going to school, um, you know, zero to 25. And then 25 to 50 roughly was, um, you know, raising a family and having a career, right? So by, raised a family. Our girls just went off to college. <laughs> we now have an empty nest. Um, and, uh, and I've been an information architect for 25 years. So life three, right, is 50 to 75. And the, the, the thing that was freeing for me that opened uh, my mind was recognizing, wow, 25 years, right? And if I'm lucky, I could be pretty healthy and productive through those 25 years. I could do something fairly substantial and really different, right? I can do something, I can start out being terrible at what I'm doing. And by the end, I could be pretty good at it. And for whatever reason, that gave me the freedom to, I, I sort of thought back to, to that life one when I was a kid and what was it that I really loved to do or, and I loved animals, right? And I, they haven't been as big a part of my last 25 years because I've been busy and raising a family, but 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I loved anything to do with animals. And I thought, you know, I want to kind of go back to that. And I want to, I want to find something that, um, allows me to be much more connected to animals and nature, um, and figure out a way to help animals and people <laughs> through this process. Right. And how do you see it helping people? I get for the animals. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research the last few years in and around this topic. And um, there's all sorts of ways in which um, people interacting with animals are therapeutic um, um, for the people, for sure, maybe for the animals. But, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of work that's been done with equine therapy, right, where people with really severe psychological problems um, uh, have, have breakthroughs interacting with horses. Um, uh, and, um, there's a, there's a wonderful, uh, story around an existing animal sanctuary that's called, uh, the gentle barn. This woman, Ellie lacks, uh, as a kid, she had a tough childhood and animals were her lifeline kind of helped her survive her childhood. And, 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 and when she grew up, she she decided um she wanted she she couldn't help herself she was kind of collecting animals right so she kind of she sort of had an animal sanctuary in her home for a while um but her vision was i want to create a safe place where animals can come to heal and once they've healed i then want to invite um children teenagers who um are hurting in one way or another from, you know, folks, you know, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, from difficult situations. And I want to have the animals help them to heal. And it's been tremendously successful. And there's now multiple kind of um, sanctuaries around the country um, that are kind of under this umbrella of the gentle barn. And that's not exactly what I want to do. I'm still figuring out the exact form that that I want my sanctuary to take, but it's an inspiration for it, right? It's the idea that um, you know, it's not just, you know, creating this beautiful place with, and, you know, that, that sort of provides a safe space for, um, for animals also then becomes a place to invite people where they can, you know, at a minimum, just have, um, some moments of happiness and joy. Um, but the, there's the, also the potential for healing, which I think, Given where we are in the world today um, and, and, and our society's difficulty with dealing with issues of, of grief and trauma and death and dying, I just think that there's some real opportunities to help, um, uh, you know, if you can create the right kind of sanctuary. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and if you, as, and as any, kind of principle are there any principles or, or guidelines or or is there some semblance of, of structure emerging around this this sanctuary um so here I'll, i think the best way to answer that is to say i'm 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 kind of committed to 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 starting small and learning as i go um so i i kind of even it's it, uh, it's ironic because to some degree, um, being an information architect, I've been pitted against things like agile and lean, right? Because um, when often often you sort of 
they they take the simplistic form of like let's do things with no plan right the sort of anti-planning uh, you know let's just throw something on the wall and see if it sticks um that's not the true spirit of lean or agile but it's it's how, it's the form you see it take sometimes so i've been pitted against those sometimes but um but i i really believe strongly for this in in sort of starting with a minimal viable product <laughs> so our, our my wife and i our immediate plans are in the next year or two we want to buy some beautiful land in Colorado. Um, uh, we're going to start with a minimal viable product kind of set of animals. <laughs> so it's gonna be like, you know, a couple dogs, a couple cats some goats, some chickens, a llama. That's probably no about giraffes. no giraffes to start. <laughs> um, and you know, so, so, you know, no more than, you know, half a dozen to a dozen animals. Um, start kind of doing an Airbnb thing, right? So, you know, inviting people to come and spend some time there and have a tour and visit with the animals, but do it at a very, a kind of a small manageable level and start to develop, you know, the, you know, my, my principles and practices, the way that we want to do this, you know, in a very small way first and then iterate. Um, so, you know, there are principles I have in mind. Um, you know, the, the most important one being it, this is really about helping people to understand that, that all animals are living beings with, you know, that, and they, they all think and feel and deserve respect just, just, just as each human being does. Um, that's, that's the most underlying principle and, and that I think we can actually be happier as a species and as, as a, as a set of societies, if we, um, you know, have that kindness and compassion for all creatures, that's the kind of underlying principle, but exact form of, of, you know, how, how we're sort of enabling people to interact and who we're inviting. And, and that's all going to emerge over time. I have, I have tons and tons of ideas. <laughs> I just don't want to like cling to any of them uh, from the beginning. Right. Um, Right, I get that. And you're a vegan, is that right? Mostly, I'm. Uh, you know, it's funny because people. There's a there's a. In the information market, you'll never find a community, um, that is against, that that doesn't like being labeled as much as the information architecture community. Right, we understand the power of labels and language, and so we don't like to be labeled ourselves. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of baggage around the word vegan, right? It can really activate people's resistance and anger. And, oh, you're one of those. Um, and I, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the word. I just, I, I think that um, I don't really like categorizing people. Um, I, I prefer to think of, um, of sort of, um, you know, that, that, that for most things we exist on a spectrum, right? It's like, you know, you, so from an interface design perspective, I prefer um, sliders to check boxes, right? Instead of sort of saying check, are you a vegan? Check, you know, are you a Presbyterian? Check. It's like, how veganish are you? Right? So I'm fairly high on the vegan spectrum, but, uh, but not all the way. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, and that, 
Well, and it's interesting because that's obviously that's very current for for people doing ultra marathons and so on. It's a it's a big um, movement right now. Is is vegan athletes, isn't it? especially in that field? Yeah, I was just I, I was searching for inspiration last week because I was terrified of doing this ultra. Like I didn't know if I could do it. Um, I, you know, I, I was scared, and so I was searching for inspiration, and I actually discovered this woman in the UK called Fiona Oaks, um, who. And it was a weird convergence of my interests because she um, she's just about my age. For the last 20 years or so, she's been running a, a, an animal sanctuary in England. And she runs marathons and ultra marathons to bring attention to the cause. But she's on a whole nother level. Like she holds world records. Um, she's she, she has a world record for running um running a marathon on every continent and the North pole in the shortest period of time. Like she is a superhero, um, um, but she's a vegan. And so she's trying to bring attention to the idea that you can be, you can be vegan and still be pretty healthy. <laughs> right. Right. That's great. It reminds me of these super stacked vegan bodybuilders, right? You give the yeah. eye to the, you can't get your protein. He's going to definitely right. get, getting their protein. Um, which, well, let's, let's, let's get to the book. I know we've, we've had, we've kind of toured around it a little bit, actually. Uh -huh. but, um, planning for everything. Um, the second of your books that I've read, I've, I read into Twingled, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, and, and really was happy to have the opportunity to read this one. Um, so yeah, give us a little bit of the genesis for the book, uh, and then, and then we'll get into some of the, the main, the main points that you make. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the book's called Planning for Everything, uh, the, the, the Design of Paths and Goals. Um, I'm a bit of a contrarian, so I wrote this book uh, fully recognizing the, um, that, that, that the pendulum had swung very strongly towards agile and lean. And, um, you know, the, as I was working on the book, um, Facebook's mantra of move fast and break things uh, was still in vogue. I'm not so sure it is today. Um, but so I wrote the book knowing it was going against um, the grain to some degree, uh, advocating that people really think about planning. Um, now, the, the word planning, that's another one like vegan that carries a lot of baggage, right? And so... Uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is, is advocate for striking a balance between what you might call big upfront planning, um, which in some cases is absolutely needed, uh, but, you know, has its, 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 its problems too. Strike a balance between big upfront planning and improvisation. And that my definition of planning is about finding that balance in your context, right? So if you're, if you're constructing a skyscraper, you have to do a lot of upfront planning. There's no way around it. You can't just change course halfway up <laughs> the structure, right? Um, but if you're doing, you know, if you're creating software or a website, there may be room for more agility. I think sometimes that's um, exaggerated. You know, it actually is quite hard to change course halfway through building a software product, but people like to pretend <laughs> that you can't. So. You know, there are contexts, like if you're doing a startup in a totally new space, um, 
than, than creating a minimal viable product and putting it out in the market and getting real feedback and seeing really is there a demand and shifting your strategy based on what you've learned makes tons of sense, right? You really want to iterate rapidly when you're creating a brand new product in, an, in, a, in a new market. Um, but when you're redesigning a site for a Fortune 500, uh, you're going to have to do a decent amount of upfront planning because there's so many people and organizations involved in realizing a particular vision um, that, that, that changing course halfway through is quite destructive. So anyway, the idea of the book is to encourage people to strike a balance. And I wrote the book. This is my first book that I really wrote more for a general audience. Um, while it does have relevance to people who are in the design world, um, my actual argument is that, that, that the design practices that we've all been, been kind of contributing to over the last 20, 30 years um, – they have tremendous value outside of our context, right? And so uh, some, of, some of the idea of the book is taking the principles and practices of design and applying them to the challenge of planning more broadly. And my stretch goal for the book was I, I wanted parents to hand the book to their teenager and saying, you need to get plan better at planning, read this book. Maybe you'll get your homework done. Maybe you'll get into college. Right. So taking the principles of design and applying them to planning. So you're, 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 you're bringing attention to the idea that it's important for us to, to design how we plan. Is that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, and, and the subtitle, the design of paths and goals um, sort of speaks to the, you know, the notion that while, sometimes we tend to think in a limited way, a narrow way about planning. We sort of say, well, it's easy. You, you know, you just, you define your goal and then you just write a list of steps here. How, here's how I achieve it. Right. So I want to make an omelet. <laughs> so, you know, get some eggs, get some mushrooms, get some cheese, you know, butter, whatever. Um, but I try to also place attention on the design of the goals themselves right, to kind of invite people to reflect on, um, you know, why do I think this goal is going to make me happy or is going to satisfy my needs? Uh, have I fully thought that out? And, and is it possible that an alternate goal um, would, would be better? Uh, I think that, so, so there's a lot of invitation in the book towards reflection and mindfulness and really questioning the goals, not just taking them for granted. Right. As, as an important part of designing the planning process, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you, talk, you, you talk about framing when you, you cite the, the Marine handbook. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when I was doing research for the book, um, it was surprising to me that the single most valuable resource I found out there, and I looked through all sorts of books and um, searching online, I, I found um, this, the Marine's Guide to Planning, right? And it's, it's like there's an official U.S. government publication. It's a PDF file. You can find it for free via Google. Um, and it was remarkably mature and sophisticated in how it approached planning. And, and 
and once I found, like, so it was a surprise to me at first, but then once I thought about it, it made sense, right? Because, you know, and the Marines, you know, in the Marines, you're sending a small group of people into harm's way, into life or death situations. You absolutely want to have a, a, a good plan. You want to have a good goal. Um, but you also that team needs to be able to adapt based on conditions on the ground, right? Something's going to go wrong. The bridge has been blown out, whatever. You can't get to the hill. Like you need to be able to adapt to improvise. In order to do that, you need to understand not only the goal, but the commander's intent, right? What, what are we actually trying to achieve? Like just because they said, get on top of that hill and defend it. Well, what do we, what do we, why are we, trying to defend the top of that hill. Maybe we're trying to protect the village or the road below. Maybe there's another way to accomplish that goal now that we can't, you know, accomplish that intent now that we can't accomplish the goal. So, yeah, so the Marines have a wonderful um, uh, approach towards planning that, in, that, that, that explicitly uses the word design, right? They talk about designing the plan. Um, and they talk about framing, framing as the most difficult and most important step in the planning process. And that's, that's where the goal and intent come into play as well, right? Because framing is both how we understand and explain a plan. And I think those are connected. <laughs> um, and, and so this is, this is where a lot of other folks who talk about planning will try to make it sound simple with respect to the goal. They'll just say, well, step one, define your goal. Well, so I use the term framing to try to help people step back. And it's not just about, you know, defining or writing down your goal. It's about thinking a little bit more broadly about what are we trying to achieve? Why? Um, what are alternate ways to achieve the same goal? Are there maybe sub goals? We could folk, you know, different ways to break this up into different, I mean, there's so many different ways to, understand and explain a plan. And this is the part we often want to skip over because it makes our heads hurt. Okay? It's, this is the hard part. It's like information architecture. It's like systems thinking. It's hard. Uh, and it's, it's, and it, it's hard to do. It's hard to talk about. And yet it's the most important piece, right? Like how you frame something has an enormous impact on, on whether or not you can get other people to buy into the plan and it has a huge impact on whether or not you can achieve it. <laughs> um, so again, people skip over the hard part because it's hard, but I try to encourage people to, to kind of dig in more at that, at that early stage, to kind of, kind of go slow to go fast. Right. Right. And thinking through how you're going to communicate this, how you're going to explain it, how, yeah. Connect to people. Right. Yeah. And, and that is, that is a guess. Cause we think quite often in, in terms of, well, how do we get this as precise as it needs to be? And how is it going to be measurable? And it becomes quite a, te it's a technical task around definition uh, and, and less about, yeah, communication, I suppose. Yeah, I, I yeah once, you, once you get past that point, then you can come up with all kinds of detailed task lists and you can send everyone off and it's like, oh, the real work's happening. Like, this is great. We're making progress. You know, the, the, the pain happens, you know, six weeks or six months later when it doesn't all come together. Um, but, you you know, if you don't get the framing right uh, and you just skip through that, 
um, you can very quickly get to the illusion of productivity. And that's what often in organizations, people are so worried about showing that they're moving forward quickly that they skip over the hard part. Right. And it feels good. We, we talked earlier about um, people having an immune response to information architecture. I think there's something about people having an immune response to sort of not being or not feeling productive or busy or getting on with things. Right? Absolutely. And in, in fact, at the first time I taught my planning workshop um, at a conference, then uh, one of the people raised their hands early on and, and they said, you know, what you need to understand, like we need help because our executives are um, allergic to planning, right? And so they're, they're kind of sharing like how hard it is to, to just do some of this early work. Um, you know, it's the same with research, right? Like uh, it's gotten a lot easier over the years in, in the context of user experience. But when we were practicing information architecture in the 90s and we said, well, we want to do some user research. We want to go out and talk with and observe real users people would look at us like we're crazy, right? Like, well, but no, we want to start doing the real work. Like let's code some HTML. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 I can, that resonates and, and possibly why in a sense agile has become so popular. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. At least in some context and why there's been the, the, the blowback because it's become associated with, with those yeah move fast you... move fast and break things okay? mm-hmm. like, well we've started to see what happens when things break <laughs> yeah and then you talk about um which is to me is is resonant of this design thinking where you talk about imagining and then narrowing could you share a bit on that yeah um so um yeah, so I, I I kind of reference the the double diamond of design, right? Where where um, the first diamond is about um, uh, you know um, making sure that you're that you're that you're creating the right product, um, uh, and so it's really kind of an, an opening up of 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 this possibility space. Um, so imagining, uh, you know, I I have a whole chapter uh that's focused on you know what are all the ways in which we can um, be more creative in in coming up with possibilities right what what might we do um and then you know in the next chapter we go the opposite direction with narrowing um this is another case where that's hard and not so much fun right the the imagining is fun right everyone wants to brainstorm and you know, get on the whiteboard, play with post-it notes. Like that's the fun part. Um, that's really the bread and butter of the design world is imagining, but narrowing is just as important. It's just more painful because, um, what is it? And I think in, in, right in, in, in the world of writing, they talk about, you know, killing your babies or killing your darlings, right? It's like, you know, some of those ideas that you loved, you have to get rid of for one reason or another and try to get down to a realistic set of possibilities where you can then make a really good decision about, you know, which path are we going to take? Yeah. Yeah. And he, yes. Yeah. And it's, I think it's what you're doing here. It's an important contribution because especially when I read a lot of say the agile literature, you know, that is sometimes 
um, skirted over to some extent. Well, you have a backlog and then at some point you have a ceremony and and somebody, maybe it's a product owner, makes a decision about the priority. But I suppose there isn't a great deal of investment in in, in, in exploring that process really from an opening up and a narrowing, right? It's, yeah, I can, I can see why you, why you're drawing attention to that. Yeah. And I, and I, when I was doing, I was doing some interviews, um, interviewing people as, as kind of basic research for my book. And I talked with, with a couple of folks who were from an agile consultancy and it was very refreshing because you know, these were all, you know, kind of hardcore software developers who started out as, 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 as kind of like true believing agilistas, um, with no, you know, um, uh, no sprint zero, right. You just dive right in and start doing stuff. And they said over the years, they learned the hard way that there really was a need for some upfront research and design and planning. And so they actually had a phase that, that, that they called the RDP phase. <laughs> it comes before the sprints and it's called research design and planning. Um, and for me, that was refreshing because, you know, it kind of gets outside of the hype and it's just like, here's a group who really wants to do good work. Um, and they found that the marriage of some upfront research design and planning with the agile methodology work. Right. And that, that totally makes sense to me, right? I'm not anti-agile. I just think you got to strike the balance. Um, and, you know, so again, that's part of why I wrote the book was to try to try to kind of encourage people to, to fight for that balance a little more. Right. And I can see how that balance is going to be very different in different contexts, as you alluded to when we started this, this section of the conversation, right? In some cases, a sprint zero might be, or a, no, no sprint zero, it might, might be absolutely right. And in some yeah. cases, it's a very long period of, planning may, may be more yep. appropriate yeah i can see that um and then you talk about the sort of deciding and executing and and and, and moving forward yeah and just to just to kind of step back and provide a, a frame like you know the the framework that we're wa- working our way through i use for the book i use this mnemonic or memory device of um of star finder right and so the star part the first four um uh, those are the principles of planning that I encourage, uh, social, tangible, agile, and reflective, right? So I, I sort of, my argument is, if you want to get better at planning, then make your planning process more social, tangible, agile, and reflective. Um, and so social, for instance, means involve people early and often in the planning process, right? You're going to, you're going to, you're gonna, it's going to be easy for you to get started and you're going to get better ideas if you involve other people. What we're now working our way through is the second piece, the finder piece, right? So framing, imagining, narrowing, deciding, executing, and reflecting. Um, and so um, you just asked about the deciding and executing part. So um, deciding, um, oh, and by the way, a star finder is like, you know, it, it's a, it's actually a map of the night sky that helps you find your way, right? So that, you know, it kind of um, makes sense here. Well, and actually, just as you shared that, uh, and you remind me now of the mnemonic, but the, the social aspect of this, you talked about uh, was it General McChrystal or somebody, a, a general who had this rule of just CC anybody who you think yeah. might be of interest and, and, and basically share unless you think it might be illegal, right? Yeah. I mean, here, here's one of the most senior military officers in, in, the, in the U.S. Um, 
uh, I believe in in uh, in the Middle East, um, the U.S. is being kind of beaten down by very freewheeling terrorist um, kind of groups, uh, and he realizes the whole the whole process of of command and control, this very fixed, rigid system of communication, um, and and sort of sending orders down the line is is absolutely failing. Um, and so he shifts to, um, to a network kind of based model. Um, and, and there's just some wonderful practical details of that, like having, um, conference calls, um, where, you know, his most important meeting of the week is a conference call in which he basically allows like anyone within, (laughs) within the, you know, the forces there to join and listen in. So, and, and the same with the email, right? CCing everyone who could possibly ha- you know, have anything to do with what's going on because he realized that, you know, at the top of the hierarchy, it's impossible to predict who might need this information. Um, uh, and so he just shared to a level that was almost illegal, right? That was like, that people thought was insane. And yet, by giving that information, spreading it more widely, people were able to to connect dots and say, "Oh my goodness, I just saw this love this activity going on, and I think that connects to what he was just saying, um, or that email I just saw, and we need to take action now." Right? And then there was a there was also the empowering kind of you know giving people more freedom to act um, without it coming all the way down the chain of command, and it was incredibly successful. Right? So um, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't spend a lot of my time studying military strategy, but that story was really powerful. And I think, um, you know, has tremendous relevance for, for business contexts as well. Yeah. And I, and I, it certainly seems to be a, a theme, um, through a lot of these interviews, this idea of transparency as being a sort of really significant enabler for good planning, agile ways of working, um, it, it just seems to recur as as being very important and almost a, a characteristic of these these very effective cultures um, for organisations dealing in complex environments. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the most interesting parts about working on this book was um, was digging into um, the, the the topics in and around predicting the future. Because planning, right, is always um, an act of, of trying to predict, anticipate, and shape the future. And on the one hand, you know, we all kind of, we, we all acknowledge, like, you can't predict the future, right? Like, in, in, in one sense, there's always going to be, you know, things that we miss. On the other hand, we can't not predict the future, it's what we do. It's like, it's a, it's a core survival instinct. Um, it's, it, it, you know, our ability to predict, um, what do we think will happen if we jump off this cliff or if we walk past the saber tooth tiger, right? Like, you know, our ability to predict the actions of others, um, and the consequences of our actions is, is what has helped us survive as a species. And, uh, and humans are particularly good at it in the sense of being able to predict sort of, you know, longer term things. 
So, you know, you can't talk about planning seriously unless you kind of dig into our ability and, and, and to, to predict. Um, and, and then, but, 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 but a piece of that is being very mindful of how, you know, we have mental models of the world. We have mental models of each other. Those mental models are quick and dirty, right? They, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of good enough some of the time, but they are all flawed. And so that's why when we make a plan, there's a very good chance there's something we're going to have missed <laughs> um, that's going to kind of surprise us, which is why we need to design also for improvisation, for, you know, kind of, you know, have a plan B and a plan C. Um, and, you know, but, but, but trying to predict who's going to need this information in the organization, um, you know, at a certain level is an act of hubris, right? Like my mental model is so good that I know who needs the information and who doesn't, right? You're almost certainly wrong. <laughs> uh, and so I think, you know, as I was working on the book, the, the idea of humility kept coming back to me of just acknowledging that we all have very limited understandings of the true complexity of the world and how all these different parts might, might kind of intersect. And um, if you have some humility going into the process, you know that while it's good to have a plan, your plan will change and that's okay. Right. Nobody has a perfect knowledge of the future. Right. Yeah. So there's the, there's two ideas there that are coming through. There's the, yeah, absolutely. The idea of the, the humility of the, of the leader who, who is um, in a senior position and to some extent directing. Um, and then that the, they're not, you know, that it's not going to be the perfect plan. And then there's the social aspect of this, which enables improvisation, right? You can't, you can't really envisage improvisation without some level of social connection between the individuals, right? Yeah. So who, who are you, who are you riffing off? If I think of a jazz band uh you can't really improvise on your own and you can't even you can't really improvise if you've just been handed a set of instructions so this this social element is, is very important I, I did a project in in the um i guess the early 2000s for a big silicon valley tech company um you know one of the old guard and we were working on their kind of intranet or employee portal and they had this really you know kind of harsh top-down culture where um, they'd been through a series of intranets and each one had sort of failed. And so then they'd have a big project that would create a new one and totally wipe out the other one, try to wipe out all traces of it. And, and everyone was kind of forced and told that they had to use the official version of the intranet. Well, one of the things that we discovered in our research was that a collection of administrative assistant had created this really beautiful annotated kind of directory of all the most important information, contacts, resources for them. Um, you know, it was a shared kind of activity of, of kind of constantly adding to this, this list. And it was, that was their version of the internet, right? That they, it was a bottom up version. And, you know, they were, they kind of kept it quiet. Like, you know, it was, it was, it took a little bit of work for us to uncover it. And, but it was, it was a crazy situation where there's, they're spending millions of dollars creating a top down version that nobody liked. And meanwhile, their own people 
just to get their work done are creating wonderful, valuable resources, but they're afraid that they'll get in trouble for doing it, right? So there, there was a problem there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, yeah, that reminds me of another client I worked with. with a, um, I don't want to give too much away to... <laughs> But yes, there was a there was a there was a fringe group who created an extremely successful um, website that was doing great things for the overall mission of this organization, uh, and we're terrified every day that they were, we are going to get fired for having <laughs> done it, right? Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So we, we were getting back to the sort of the the, the tail end of the uh, of your framework here, the deciding and the executing. Yeah. So w- what did you sort of uncover studying those areas? Yeah. So. Um, a little bit like framing the dis, you know, dis, for deciding, it was um, it was an interesting challenge to 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 write a whole chapter on deciding. But I, and, and to a certain extent, my whole kind of star finder framework, right? The finder, you know, breaking the process of planning out into six phases and and each deserving of a chapter, really stretches out the idea of planning. But but I think there's value in that to get is to really examine each piece of the process. And that's particularly true with deciding where we tend to have this, this kind of simplistic mental model that, you know, and then I decided, right. Like it just happened. Right. And you know, the decision was made. Um, and, and yet, you know, deciding is, I, I think that we have that simplistic notion because Deciding is something that happens in kind of a an implicit, tacit way that we don't tr- totally understand. It's not always fully conscious, right? This is where, um, you know, so a simple way of explaining it is folks who, folks who have any level of mindfulness about their own decision-making know the value of sleeping on it or of going for a walk before you make the decision, right? Giving it a little bit of time. Even, you know, sometimes we make our best decisions in the shower, right? It's like, you know, it's when your mind, you let your mind rest and you're not consciously thinking of this difficult decision or choice and our mind's doing something (laughs) uh, that all of a sudden we're like, we get it. And sometimes, you know, that eureka moment where you know the right path can be a whole body experience. That's where you get the tingling, you know, all around your body. And because it's not your con, it's not only your conscious mind, your rational mind that makes the decision. It's tying into our emotions and the, the wisdom that comes from our kind of emotion and our, our sort of subconscious mind. Um, and so, you know, I try to tease apart this idea of making a decision because I think we need to give it a little bit more time and space. Um, and I, you know, I try to just, just in the spirit of being creative and thinking outside the box, you know, I, I sort of encourage things like, you know, if you're struggling with a really difficult decision, try writing the instructions first, right? Say, okay, well, let's just say I, we decided to go down path A. Let's write the instructions for a particular audience of like, okay, we're doing this. Here's what you need to do next. Here's why we're doing this. And that act of trying to explain why you made this decision might make you question it. Like, you you know, you find yourself, oh man, this is feeling weird. Like these people are going to be mad at me or they're just, they're not going to get why we went. Right. So 
you know, you might uh, in some cases kind of, you know, kind of make a tentative decision for yourself, start to follow that path and then, and then see, does this feel right or not? Right. I like that. And actually brings in what we were talking earlier about this idea of, well, if this was social, if we were, this is a social act, what would it look like? Yeah. 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 No. Um, and then you've, and then there's executing, right? That's next. Yeah. So executing is my opportunity to make the point that the biggest mistake in the execution phase is to think that the planning is done. Um, because this is where you, this is where you start to build something or, you know, carry out a plan and you realize you made a mistake or something happens, right? Disruption. Uh, and so this is where I think the, the genius of things like agile and lean come into play, right? Those are, those are, you know, methodologies and principles, um, for, um, for planning and doing that recognize, um, the, the need for improvisation and for additional incremental planning as you go. There's another piece to this, which is, um, the, it, it actually makes sense to leave quite a bit of planning until you start building or doing, um, because until you get there, you're not going to be fully motivated and you're not going to have all the information to know what's going to work best. I have a simple example that I, I think I use in the book where when uh, our oldest daughter was looking at colleges, um, we planned a whole kind of um, road trip where, you know, we spent, I don't know, five days driving around the United States looking at different colleges. And so that was a big planning activity. I had to schedule, you know, the campus visits and tours, um, book hotels, kind of figure out how far could we drive, you know, between one college and the other and, you know, what, what constitutes a day of, 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 of adventure. Um, and there was a point where I've been, I've been planning all this and I started to um, look at, at restaurants, right? So like, okay, we're going to be in Pittsburgh. Where do we, where do we want to eat? And then I, I realized this is crazy. Like I don't, I'm not, first of all, I, I just didn't really have the stomach for, for more planning. Um, but, but more importantly, you know, I didn't know what time we were going to pull into Pittsburgh and how we were going to feel, right. Whether we want to go out for a nice fancy meal or just get something quick. And I, I realized, you know, that was a good example where you wanted to, you know, it made sense consciously to just leave parts of the planning until you get there. Right. Um, and there's, there's tons of parallels for that. And so you don't need to feel guilty that you pro, you know, that you push off some of the planning, um, because it actually makes sense. You're going to, you're going to do a better job, um, when you're there. Right. And, and interestingly enough, in, in the information age that we're now in, that, that type of a sort of logistical planning on an individual basis, we can do much more just in time than perhaps yeah, in, in years gone past. Um, and, and then you, 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 you cited some research where they looked at the effectiveness of, of people if they were upfront planners or if they were planners you'd go or if they did, a, did, or if they did a mix. What, what did you find from that research? Yeah, so... Um, the other, you know, beyond the, um, the, the, the Marines, the Marine Corps guide to planning, um, the other kind of treasure trove I found in, in doing my research was, were, were a lot of 
papers in the area of cognitive psychology, um, where so that that whole community of academia um, they view planning as one of the executive functions of the brain, right? It's like one of a handful of the most important things that our brain does, and so they've they've, they've studied our ability to plan, and so it's fascinating to kind of look at um, you know how our ability to plan changes as we get older, right? From early childhood through teenage years and, and then as we get older um, and, and how planning abilities and approaches vary from individual to individual. Um, one of the um, tools that they use to study planning ability um, are, is a game called the Tower of London and there's a variant called the Tower of Hanoi. And these are those kinds of, um, well, I'll show you here. There we go. Uh, so uh, there's one of them, right? And this is kind of, you're trying to move the discs from one place to another in the, in the minimum number of moves. And that's not the way, <laughs> that's actually the wrong strategy right there. But, um, and, and so what they found is, um, in versions of this game where you have a small number of discs, then the upfront planners do best, right? So I, you know, I, I kind of stare at this for a couple minutes and figure out my moves and then I do it. That's the, you know, so with a small number of discs, um, upfront planners do the best, but if you add a few discs, you know, and the, the, the complexity of the challenge um, expands significantly, then those folks struggle. Right, because you can, we can only fit so much, so many moves into our brain at a time, and it's the folks who um, who kind of plan and move iteratively, right? Who sort of say, "Okay, let me let me try this, and then take another look, and then so so that fits with what we we're just talking about with execution, right? That that the, the executing and the planning are done iteratively. I'm not trying to figure it out all up front. I'm not blindly just doing stuff. I'm, I'm carefully making a move and then thinking and then making another move. And so for me, as someone who's more naturally a planner, in, as I get older, I work on being better at improvising, right? So that's my weakness. I tend to try to plan too much up front. And so I have, you know, I would say in the last 10 years, I've gotten a lot better at improvising as part of my process in everything that I do. Um, uh, there are other folks who are more naturally improvisers who could benefit from adding a little planning to the process. Right. And I'm just looking at those tower, that tower Hanoi problem. And so from that basis, if I'm a sort of an agilist, I listen to this, I'll be like, well, that's music to my ears. Of course, you know, of course the upfront <laughs> planners are going to fail. As soon as it gets to a certain level of complexity, we need to switch to this iterative mode. But I suppose to extend that example, in this case, we've, we've got the problem really well framed right? We know we've got to move this disc from one side to the other. We know how, you know, roughly the, the field of play in terms of, of our paths to achieve that, in terms of it's about moving discs across. But actually, we've got another order of complexity in a lot of the real world problems we face, where we have to define the board, and we have to engage uh, people socially in terms of what we're ultimately trying to achieve. And so it is a, it is a different problem to, to the, the, the towers of Hanoi, right? Yeah, it, it, and and even you know when we talk about defining or framing the goal, um, 
one of the things that I sort of include in my, my kind of map of planning, I have a visual that kind of shows the planning process and is, is co-goals, right? It, it's exceedingly rare that we really only have one goal, right? And, and, you know, if you're, if you're planning a vacation, the goal is not just to get to Belize, um, right? It's, it, you know, you're trying to create a good experience for multiple members of your family. Um, and you're also bumping up against other goals, like I don't want to get fired from work because I went for six months instead of a week. And, you know, and I, and, and I have a responsibility to not go for too long because we have to put our dog, you know, in a kennel or, you know, with a friend and, um, and, and in a work setting, right. The goal is not just to build this website, but, you know, members of your team are going to have other projects that they're working on. Um, you're trying to juggle their career development, um, you know, and their home homework balance with, with achieving this goal. So we're always juggling multiple goals. So yeah, the, the real world complexity, um, you know, is, is just so much beyond <laughs> these simple games, right? So these games reveal some interesting things around our in inherent abilities and strategies um, for tackling these challenges. Um, Another another game or, or kind of challenge that they use in the research is are shopping tasks, right? So they'll say, okay, you're going to the grocery store and you need to, these are the seven items that you need to, to collect on your way through the grocery store. And here's a map of the grocery store, figure out your path, right? And so it's another planning challenge where you, um, but in the real world, when you go to the grocery store, Again, you've got other things that are going on, right? You might decide, oh, I want to stop to get gas. And then you might walk in the door of the grocery store and see someone you don't want to bump into and shift your path at the last second, right? Like, I don't need bananas that badly. I'm going to avoid that person instead. Um, so, yeah, real-world planning is much more complex, and that's why I think this whole idea of, of being mindful of not getting over-fixated on your path or your goal um, can help people be productive but also be happy right yeah um so it feels like we've had a very good tour through um the main thesis of the book is there anything we've we've missed or you'd like to sort of add in terms of reflections on planning um i think that's been good i mean my my most fun part of of writing this book was you know i, I like to tell stories when i write and um in this book, I really tried to tell stories of failure, <laughs> uh, you know, stories of where I tried to climb a mountain and failed because I almost got blown off the side of the mountain or um, where I was driving in the Rocky Mountains and, and hit a sheet of ice and, you know, kind of feared for my life. Um, I think that in talking about this, this, this topic of planning, it, it's good to be aware of uh, you know, on the one hand is the, the dangers of hubris, right? Like I talk about the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, right? That's that so many people died in the, in, in the sinking of the Titanic because it was literally thought of as a ship that couldn't sink. So they didn't have enough lifeboats. Um, that's a good symbol of the, the dangers of hubris around planning. So I try to, 
you know, make fun of myself with all of these, these kinds of failures, um, to, to, you know, to sort of set an example, like the more that we're mindful of how often things don't work out the way we thought, um, the better we can have a plan, but be prepared to, to change it at the last minute. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful message to end with. Um, or, all right, Peter, well, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. And the, the main places for more, you, there's intertwingle.org, semanticstudios.com, and then the book available on Amazon, I'm guessing other places, planning for everything. Yep. Um, uh, anything, any, anything else you'd like to shout out? We'll put links in the description. Nope, that's been a wonderful conversation, and I uh, hope, hope folks uh, enjoy it and, and learn from it. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your day. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.